Welcome to Homebound Veterans, Season 4, Episode 18. I'm Keith. I'm Laura. We only have three more episodes, including this one in this season, Laura. In 2021. What a year. We're closing it out. We're closing it out. It's amazing. Thanks for listening to our podcast about the veterans' transition story. I think it's important stories to hear and listen to and share uh, for anybody going through a transition out of the military, but really any transition out of their life. Some of the lessons that we've learned here and common things that people have recommended are common to anybody trying to get unstuck out of a transition. Unstuck is a great way to describe it. In next episode will be the Sierra Club. Uh, their military outreach program is phenomenal. Stay tuned for that. And then the final episode of this season will be our story. Oh. So you can care about that or not, but we're telling it. <laughs> and it truly is a story about learning to get unstuck. Yeah. Man, I was stuck. <laughs> so in this interview, we interview Derek Abbey. He's currently the CEO of an organization called Project Recover, which we'll get to in a minute. But he's also a modern day 007. He is literally the international man of mystery. Why? Well, I mean, he started out as a grunt in the Marines. He became an aviator. He got involved in special operations and he got a PhD. I don't know what else. Maybe he could join the Space Force. I don't know. Maybe he is, we just don't know it. He could be. What Project Recover does uh, is they go out and look for the remains of service members who perished either in battle or uh, training but overseas and, and trying to bring about um, closure for the families of those service members who were lost. And they've been, they just finished up a dive in Plow and then in Italy. The wonderful thing is that somebody took notice of what their efforts are doing to help our, our veterans' families recover. Uh, and they produced a documentary, uh, which will be released in December. That's called 2021. 2021. That's called To What Remains. So look forward to that documentary. I'm sure it's going to be amazing. We haven't seen it yet. I can't wait. We're going to watch it. So look for that uh, documentary in December and enjoy this conversation we had with Derek Abbey. Laura and I were, were kind of chuckling the other day because I was explaining to her your background and, and uh, you know, why we were talking with you and, and we were laughing. I'm like, the I think the only thing he hasn't really done is he's he hasn't become an astronaut yet. Yeah. Oh, I, there, I have a story behind that. <laughs> Let's hear it. So, so when I was a kid, if you would have asked me what I wanted to do when I was in sixth grade, um, I wanted to be an astronaut. But to to be honest, it was such a it wasn't real yeah. because I, I mean, I, I, my, my store, my mom didn't graduate high school. We were kind of paycheck, paycheck to paycheck welfare and stuff like that. And, yeah. um, and so it was just like, what do you want to do? It was just kind of this unrealistic dream. Mm. And then, you know, life moved forward and I ended up in the Marine Corps, ended up in a squadron and all that stuff. And, um, that, which is also a fairy tale. And one day I picked up the more admin soliciting for the astronaut program. And the one thing I didn't have was I didn't have a physics class that I needed. And uh, I, I contemplated going to the community college and taking a physics class and <laughs> an application. But I, I, I distinctly, I mean, I can, I, right now I, I can see myself standing in the ready room and it was actually printed out at Mar Admin right. and looking at it and going, 
kind of reflecting back to Derek in sixth grade and right. like, holy smokes, this you know, is this it. is like, this is like, I could actually apply to this. I just got to go <laughs> and I didn't do it. I was just too busy, but it, it, it was Slacker. like, wow, life has changed. Yeah. Life has really, really changed. I never That's thought cool. I'd be in this scenario. So, That's cool. well, and the reason that we say this, obviously to catch everybody else up to speed is listening is that you are. Uh, the president CEO of Project Recover, which we'll get into. But before you did that, so you, you have a PhD, uh, which is impressive in and of itself. But before that, you joined the Marine Corps out of high school. And that was quite a, a path for you, for you and a trajectory, right? So can you just briefly tell us about your experience in the Marines? Yeah, uh, I you know I'll kind of go back to that story. It, it was a fairy tale. I owe I truly believe I owe my life to to the Marine Corps. I grew up in and around Seattle, Washington, and um, was raised by a single mom that, that didn't graduate high school and did everything she could to raise an ambitious little boy. And um, we bounced around quite a bit. And when I was thirteen, she unexpectedly passed away from brain aneurysm. Mm. And so, um, as you can imagine, you know that turned my life upside down. And yeah. uh, ended up spending some time with my aunt and uncle. They did all they could to take care of me, but I was really without a rudder or a sail. And um, I, I kind of reflect back now on like, man, my, my life was a disaster. Hmm. And so I ran away to the Marine Corps and enlisted. You know, when I used to tell that story, I used to tell people that I was hustled by a good recruiter, which is a little <laughs> true. But <laughs> the truth was, I was I was running away, and I needed an escape. Um, you know, I wasn't thinking about what the Marine Corps would provide for me, but um, I found some, a lot in the Marine Corps, especially what I needed as an 18-year-old without that rudder or sail, a system that I could succeed in, some discipline, some structure, things like that, and, and I excelled. So I was in, initially a en, enlisted communicator. Um, you know, I remember going to boot camp and going to um, MCT, Marine Combat Training, and then they're like, you're going to 29 Palms. And like wow that sounds really nice and i've heard things about <laughs> palm springs and that's how ended up out in 29 palms it wasn't at all what i thought it was going to be no. uh but yeah i became a communicator and then i was based at marine corps air station el toro which is no longer around with right. Coast Guard 38 i right. uh, had a successful tour um and at the end of that i was selected for MISEP, which is a commissioning program uh that the marine corps has and they sent me to college I went to Oregon State University to get an undergraduate degree and um, incredible program. Basically, my job was to be a student for four years mm. and did that. Got a couple degrees in history, was commissioned on the backside of that as a ground officer. And all Marine officers have to go to what's called the basic school in Quantico, Virginia for six months to learn, you know, basic infantry tactics and how to be a junior officer in the Marine Corps. And while I was there, I was selected for an aviation contractor, which was also just this kind of random thing i was in my room one night and some other second lieutenant filling a leadership billet came to my room and said hey are you interested in flying at all and i said what <laughs> said, i need to like, know if you have any interest in, at all in flying I'm like well I don't, I don't know he's like do you have any interest at all i'm like okay sure i have interest in flying <laughs> and he said all right tomorrow at 1800 you have to be in this building I'm like, oh, I just gave up my Wednesday night. That stinks. <laughs> so I just show up. I have no idea what I'm going into, and it's the aviation aptitude exam. So I just sat down, took the test, like, all right, and passed. And they're like, you passed. Go get your physical. Took my physical, passed. They're like, you're going to flight school. I said, I don't 
actually want to go to finance school. <laughs> and um, they said, nope, you're going. Needs in the Marine Corps. I'm like, needs in the Marine Corps. Anyways, uh, so I was selected for the um, NFO track and went down to Pensacola and um, mm -hmm. went through flight school. Absolutely hated flight school. Mm. Um, almost every single day of it. But I was stubborn. And I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I want what I consider the best in the Marine Corps at the time. That was the F-18. And so um, I excelled in flight school and got what I wanted, West Coast Hornets. Got sent over to uh, um, Miramar to go through the RAG. Before that, though, while I was in, in, in flight school, I was actually airborne down in Key West where 9-11 happened. Hmm. And uh, I remember like, man, you know, young, younger, motivated Marine, you know, we know things are going to be kicking off. And as a Marine, you want to do Marine things. And now I felt like I was missing out. Right. So by the time I got over to the RAG in uh, Miramar, it was obvious that the um, war in Iraq was going to kick off. And we were going through 2002, the end of 2002, and me and two other friends that were doing pretty well in the program, they fast-tracked us through to join our squadron because our squadron was deploying. And so mm -hmm. I joined uh, 121 in San Diego and immediately deployed and started doing Operation Southern Watch missions. Broke 100 hours over Kuwait in the F-18. Wow. And then I was overhead Basra when the when the war kicked off hmm. and there's another funny story about that um me and a me and a buddy are flying and really doing some reconnaissance missions and you know every once in a while they'd shoot at you and uh we're flying along and i remember kind of looking and i'm like that cloud looks funny and so does that cloud and when both of us realized at the same time that it was flak right. you know or surface to air fire and we're like oh they're shooting at us holy <laughs> smokes and all right and uh so we do our mission we come back and they're like the war kicked off and we're thinking you know there's radios and stuff. This seems like important information that you could let us know while we're airborne. But <laughs> versus so that was some how the, signal flares that. Could yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, so did the whole push north. Um, they they redeployed the Hornets back to the United States relatively quickly. The Marine Corps Hornets. Um, just you know, they, everybody thought the war was over and things mm -hmm. like that. Came back to San Diego and um, obviously it wasn't. And so the uh, the fighting kept on going and. You know, Marines are fighting in um, El Ambar and stuff like that. And so I went to my boss and said, you know, if Marines are fighting overseas and I'm sitting in San Diego, I don't feel really comfortable with this. If there's an opportunity to go back, I'd, I'd like to participate and uh, careful what you wish for because mm -hmm. uh, they sent another Hornet squadron back and that was a different squadron. So I ended up joining 242 and going back and doing OAF2, mm -hmm. uh, second Fallujah campaign, initial elections and things like that. And wow. did another uh, Hornet deployment to the Middle East. And then at the end of that was getting ready to transition uh, to a ground tour. And they were standing up Marine Special Operations Command. So uh, I was selected for that. I was really excited about that. Became a plank holder with Marine Special Operations Command when they when they mm -hmm. started that on the, on yeah. the West Coast, what's now First Raider Battalion. Yeah. Um, hung out with the Smurf ninjas, as I like to call them, for mm -hmm. three years. And I'm doing some incredible things with more incredible people. Did an Afghanistan deployment. And then on the backside of that, I was selected for another education program, the Advanced Degree Program. And that's when they sent me to the University of San Diego to get a master's. That was the 2009 time frame. And initially when I went, I was kind of like, you know, I've been deploying nonstop for the last eight, nine years. This is going to be a break. I literally left Afghanistan and came to San Diego, was sitting in this pristine campus. You've been to the University of San Diego. Mm -hmm. It was like very different than Afghanistan. <laughs> and so, uh, um, but my, my break in my mind lasted about three weeks before I was thinking, you know, I need to figure out what I'm going to have an impact on and what, what I'm going to study. Mm -hmm. 
And I studied, studied, I started um, researching military and higher education because I was seeing this big influx of military into the higher education space. Mm-hmm. New GI Bill was launched, the post 9-11 GI Bill. And some schools were doing good work and some schools weren't doing anything. And so did a case study of San Diego State's program, built a thesis around that that was used to start a bunch of programs across the country, but still had to pay back. And I was sent to North Carolina, Camp Lejeune. Uh, I called it Lejeune for 20 years, but uh, but I, when I got there, it was Lejeune. And I, I ran the Marine Corps Train the Trainer School as my twilight tour, um, which was was not kind of train uh, is out of the Corps. What I did, um, so did a couple of years, a few years uh, working there, which is Baker's Hours teaching um, instructors and curriculum developers and schoolhouse leaders for the 93 schoolhouses across the Marine Corps and around the world uh, mm. that the Marine Corps serves um, in North Carolina, and, and then retired in 2014. And actually, my retirement ceremony was seven years ago yesterday. Today was oh. my seven-year anniversary for first day on terminal leave, which is kind of interesting. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So Laura, total, how many years in? 23. So I did 23 years. Okay. Yeah. Laura and I have uh, interacted with 29 Palms just briefly. We went to <laughs> we went to uh, Joshua Tree and um, we hiked around a little bit. We were exiting the park and found that 29 Palms is right outside Joshua Tree, which is beautiful, but but 29 Palms is doesn't like, share the I was same like, we've, beauty. We've got to be missing it. It's... <laughs> so, there's Am a I story behind that. My wife and I visited Joshua Tree my first time in 2018, and I was reluctant to go to Joshua Tree because I associated Joshua right. Tree mm-hmm. to my initial Marine Corps experience mm-hmm. at 29 Palms, which wasn't yeah. positive. But Joshua Tree is amazing, and yes. we, we had a wonderful time. But yeah, not not quite the same. No, so, I actually landed there <laughs> once with the reserves in in uh, 29 Palms, and I was taken back to times in the desert you know i mean it was very similar eerily similar to that to that environment especially Uh, when the wind wind whips through there uh well we weren't there when the wind was crazy that's good it definitely was like i i feel like i'm missing something (laughs) yeah it's more notorious than you you know you hear about it and then you look around and you go that's that's funny so question (laughs) for you what did you get your degree in at usd So I got my master's in higher education leadership. Higher education, okay. Yeah. After I retired, I went back to San Diego and started the doctorate at at USD. So I did my my doctorate there as well, which is in their leadership studies program. And my my area of focus um, actually included the military and higher education again. But this time I went kind of earlier in the process and was really interested in um, how the making meaning process for, yeah. for veterans yeah. and active duty seeking higher education and factors influencing that decision yeah. making and did some adult development work um, around transition and other things like that. Fantastic. So did you do a lot of um, meaning making work and work with the Institute on meaning making and all of that or because there's a whole Institute about all of that. I'm yeah, no, I, I didn't work with the Institute um, that just that really uh, was the framing that I was using for, for my dissertation work, but but it did do a whole lot with the institute. Um, while I was working on my doctorate, um, most of the time I was working in higher education, but I, I ran San Diego, University of San Diego's military veterans program and also ran San Diego State's gotcha. uh, military veterans program, so two big, big programs. How did higher ed uh, help you make the transition? How did being a student help 
you walk through this journey of transition? Yeah, well, um, it might be not what you're expecting, but my transition was very much assisted by the, the programs that I did while I was in the Marine Corps. So I got sent to Oregon State to do my undergrad while I was in the Marine Corps. I got sent to the University of San Diego to do my master's while I was in the Marine Corps. And both of those programs kind of allowed me to have one foot in and one foot out. Hmm. Um, I was an active duty Marine, but not doing yeah. Marine stuff. I was just being a student. Um, so I had this kind of safety net that allowed me to go through um, a lot of the transition stressors that most people go through. So even when I reflect back to when I was 22 and going to my undergrad, I, I distinctly remember the stress that I was feeling being in higher education and kind of being outside of the Marine Corps and comparing it to, you know, I was a, a sergeant, but being a sergeant in the in the Marine Corps and then now being a student in, in college. And it was during that period, I, I really started to reflect on kind of some of the stressors that I was experiencing. I didn't have the language and stuff to, to frame them, but um, was dealing with them. And it was nice because I had this kind of safety net, but that was transitioning during peacetime fast forward um later on i literally transitioned from a war environment to higher education hmm. and got to a, a kind of the second wave of experience um again with the safety net one foot in one foot out um and deal with not only kind of transition stressors but also some of the other stressors that are associated with leaving a combat environment and then now being back in the united states and in higher education environments specifically and what those things were like, um, kind of going through some of those processes. Additionally, um, running that schoolhouse, which was a Marine Corps assignment, but, um, you know, bankers hours, no pending deployments and, and things like that. Um, so more like a, a regular job, although definitely still in the military. And so a lot of that stuff um, set me up for my transition when I actually retired. I had gone through a lot of those stressors already, had kind of dealt with them, um, found solutions to uh, address them, and then um, had established a foundation that when I when I transitioned out, I, I had uh, meaningful work, um, I, I, I had a purpose or generativity or still was establishing a, a legacy in, in post-service, um, had relationships outside of the military, um, so healthy, strong bonds, as well as those uh, uh, related to the military. So I think a lot of the stress that a lot of people um, face, I faced, I had these kind of like opportunities right. to almost test uh, that transition. And that led to uh, an easier one, uh, definitely in the psychosocial realm, um, but the employment realm and just all sorts of all sorts of areas, even though ultimately when I when I transitioned, like literally when I retired, um, everything I tell people to do, I didn't do at that moment. <laughs> um, I, I resigned my commission and kind of went out the door, wasn't sure where I was going to leave, wasn't sure where I was going to live. Um, I hadn't established my employment yet. Um, I didn't know I was going to be going to school. It was just kind of this, okay, here I go. Now I retired, so I did have that, again, another safety net with a pension. Um, you know, I had a house in, in North Carolina. Worst case scenario, I could have just sat and ate cereal and watched TV for the rest of my life, which probably wouldn't have been healthy, but mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't going to starve to death or anything like that. Right. Um, and that ultimately also gave me additional options down the road, especially like going to school and, and not having to seek out, you know, top notch job that paid some ridiculous amount. Right. I could really go for things that were valuable to me and that 
um, you know, filled my purpose bucket, if you will. Seven years ago today was your first day on terminal leave. Yes. I want to know, how did you, what happened seven years ago today to today that helped you most successfully kind of build what you're do what you've been doing and what your your life's purpose now? Yeah. Um, well, it's actually not the best story. So, good. um, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So maybe that is, maybe it is a good story. It's yeah. not a clean one, I guess or, I should say. None so of them are clean. None of them. Yeah. Are <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, I, I shared with you one of the worst moments of my life. Um, my, my, the worst moment of my adult life was probably the four or five months before I retired and it had nothing to do with my retirement. Um, it had to do with me kind of bottoming out. Um, and, and realizing I had to deal with some things that I hadn't dealt with and then taking the time to deal with them. And, and that was, um, some stuff that I was dealing with from my, my previous deployment. Um, even my earlier life, you know, I hadn't truly processed the, the death of my mother, the absence of my father and things like that. And then, um, when I returned from my last deployment, I mentioned, you know, I went to the University of San Diego, and I had to leave uh, my deployment a little early to participate in that program. And so uh, a Marine came out and replaced me in Afghanistan. Um, incredible guy doing incredible things. Um, you know, I had been at MARSOC for a few years, and we had really built up to what it was at that point and where it was going. And he was coming in after we had laid a lot of foundation. So I was really excited about that. He was going to be able to deploy for a, a short bit. And ultimately, he was killed uh, shortly after uh, getting there, and I didn't I didn't process that very well, or at all. And uh, um, and I now the good thing about being one foot in and one foot out is I was at the University of San Diego, and I I didn't have any other Marines around me to really kind of go to or anything like that. Or and so I spent a lot of time kind of dealing with that in my mind and other things, yeah. and, or actually not dealing with it in my mind. And so it manifested itself a little ways down the road in all sorts of negative ways, as you can imagine, um, some anger issues and, and uh, just just being in a bad place and ultimately kind of destroying the relationship that I was in uh, at the time. And then on the backside of that, I just found myself in a really bad spot. And I was like, I, I mean, I distinctly remember being in my truck and driving somewhere in, in North Carolina and thinking, I'm just going to run this thing into this tree. Mm -hmm. And literally the, the, that thought went through my mind and the microsecond right after it, I caught myself thinking, who are you? This isn't how I think. This right. isn't how I think. Right. And so I, I, uh, I was like, I need to, I need to talk to somebody. I went home and, um, it was a Sunday night and I called military one source, mm -hmm. um, and actually just told them, I, one, I was surprised somebody answered, and they did. And then I said, I need to talk to somebody. And they put me in touch with a counselor the very next day. And ultimately, that was the point I kind of started to take all that stuff out and process it. Mm -hmm. um, and I went from kind of bottoming out to really realizing the things that were important to me and um, putting myself in a much healthier place. Um, and so by the time I retired... Um, which was only a few months after that, I was in this moment where it's like, okay, um, 
I'm in a much healthier space right now. I'm actually probably prepared to um, deal with this move into my next phase. And so when I when I think about um, what happened seven years ago today, the first day I was on terminal leave, it was the day I was introduced to my wife, that I'm, who I'm married to today, right now. <laughs> yeah. So I got I got a text from a friend uh, who was a mutual friend of ours. I was in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife or Michelle, the person I would end up marrying, mm-hmm. was in uh, San Diego, and she she talked the two of us into an introduction, and then uh, you know it's it's become incredible since then, and it's the most healthy relationship I've ever been, and mm-hmm. um, because I yeah I hadn't my previous relationships I hadn't processed some of that stuff and mm-hmm. um, ultimately it, it was a detriment, but, but yeah, so boy, that, uh, I, I don't good. even know if I answer your question, you but, did. uh, you okay. Did. Which, <laughs> which leads me to one last question and then we'll get uh-huh. to this. Um, is this, I told you she asked better questions. No, no, it's great. <laughs> what elements of your process do you think are necessary and or common in order to get to health? for um, transitioning vets? Uh, well, um, the, there's not a lot of common ones, I don't think. So I'll answer the second part of that question yeah. first. Um, but the necessary pieces of it, um, and that's, I think, even taking off the top portion of what potential traumatic experiences that you may have had sure. um, while, in the, while in the military, um, transition itself comes with this kind of, and tra- traumatic experience isn't the in the right isn't the right word, but it comes with a number of friction points that can ultimately be very very detrimental mm-hmm. to folks, and that's actually what my my research is connected to, because um, I started questioning that. So I was working in higher ed, working with veterans um, after I got out of the military, and people were talking about transition, 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 and I really took a step back and I kind of asked what's the big deal? You know, when you're in the military, you're constantly in transition, mm-hmm. um, going on deployment, come back from deployment, executing sure. orders, you just executed orders, you're going to the field. All You're not stagnant at all. And we as a society aren't really stagnant like we used to be. You know, most people do a job for a couple of few years and then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Very rarely is it the case where, you, you know, you grew, you're living in the same town you grew up in and you worked at some mill factory or other place for 30, 40 years and you retire and you know, you're still hanging out with friends that you went to high school with. That's, that's, that happens from time to time, but not so much anymore. We're, we're pretty um, mobile and fluid. And so I had to take that step back and really look at the, what's the big deal about this specific transition from the military system. And so um, me and some colleagues really started looking at them the psychosocial realm and also the ecological realm, meaning mm. um, what what does the military system provide you um, in development um, that other systems don't? And and we looked at identity, intimacy, and purpose and stole it from Eric Erickson stuff. But Eric Erickson would say that those things develop in series. Right. And I argue that they the military allows you to develop them fully in parallel. And yeah. if you think about the three of them, identity, who you are, um, you come in, whatever commissioning source you come in, boot camp, uh, OCS, the, one of the academies, um, your identity is, you know, you are now part a military member, whatever service it is, you know, if you start exploring other intersecting identities, the, mili- the, the system really pushes back on that and 
encourages you to focus on, in my case, being a Marine. And the more you buy into that, the more the system rewards you. And so you kind of do that, get into the intimacy side of things, not romantic side, but really strong bonds with others. Again, take away the I, create the team from the very first day, your rack mate to a fire team, to a squad, to a platoon, um, company, battalion, squad, or ship, whatever it happens to be. We're working together. We have a common mission, common experience, common hardship. And um, I depend on you, you depend on me. Mm -hmm. If we deploy, now potentially is a life and death situation. My life is in your hands, yours is in mine. And those bonds are incredible. Even with people we don't necessarily like, you know, we're, we're still very, very connected through those experiences that share culture and other things like that. And then last, that that um, purpose. And most of the time when people talk about purpose, it's kind of really shallow, you know, kind of like purpose is a paycheck, which is not the right way. But I'm thinking legacy and generativity and impact on the world and responsibility. And you see that very, very quickly at a high level in the military through, I'm responsible again through the people for the people, but then millions and millions of dollars of equipment and things like that. And it, and it it's a lot very quickly, even as a young enlisted member, definitely on the officer side, you get all this responsibility. And again, if you deploy, now it's further enhanced. I'm responsible for the men and women that I'm in this situation with or in this fight with all the equipment and potentially the lives of an enemy. Yeah. And the day you separate from that system, that very, very compressed system, um, Nobody really talks about those and you swing to the opposite end of the spectrum. So role confusion, isolation mm -hmm. and stagnation. Mm -hmm. And those can cause just incredible um, heartache and, and stress on people if they're not aware of it. And even if they are aware of it, it can cause that, that stress. And typically they're starting to do it now, but typically the transition programs really focus on the technical side of things you know hey you need a job and a paycheck here's how to write a resume right. here's right. here's a stack of papers to read all right yeah. good luck you know <laughs> and they don't you know they don't talk about well who are you besides derek the marine and right. um how do you have healthy relationships with other people that don't necessarily have a military experience um what are healthy expectations to have of them what are healthy expectations to have for them to have of you how do you have these conversations share your experience and then now you have this newfound self-efficacy um, to go explore that purpose that's completely up to you mm. and what's important to you. And it could be big or small, but now you have to exercise that, that newfound freedom. And that is paralyzing simply through fear for a lot of folks. I've had some of the most impressive military members in my office in the higher education space just breaking down. And the common statement um, on the backside of it has been just tell me what to do yes. and I have to say you know this isn't my life I'm, I'm trying to do my own thing with my life I can yeah. I can counsel you or mentor you and things like that but you need to make these decisions to to move forward in a way that you think is right for you your family or those that you love and um, that's paralyzing to a lot of people and then add on some issues that you might be dealing with with some traumatic events or pick something um, injuries and and things like that now those are further enhanced i mean if you think about one of the things that people talk about a lot today in the, the suicide issue well what's a big contributor to that and that's isolation so if you think about that intimacy piece and you're struggling um and you're substituting you know help with maybe some alcohol or other drugs and 
you're you're not interacting with people now you you're just exacerbating that situation and, and we find ourselves in some pretty bad spots but i think people that are just pretty healthy um that you know they, they get outside the military and they, they kind of reflect on their experience and look at these stories and they're like oh i didn't do you know the sexy job or whatever or i didn't do 15 deployments or maybe no deployments mm-hmm. but i feel horrible and i don't know what to do and all these things and it's because of that that compresses that the military creates for very very good reason um but now you've created all these gaps outside of that and um you're dealing with your stressors and so mm-hmm. what now that was this is that long answer to your question so if you're aware of those identity who am i you know and also kind of owning that and really spending some time um owning it like hey okay I, you know for me i'm a father i'm a husband um, I work in the MIA community. I do, I do all these different things. I'm a, a student, a scholar, a teacher. Um, and some of those I've developed further outside of the military. But you can also pick things you want to be. You know, we brought up astronaut earlier. Like, yeah. can I pursue being an astronaut? Or, you know, and it doesn't have to be a flag on a, on a mountain as far as the purpose piece. I see that a lot. Like, I'm going to cure cancer. Ah! Mm-hmm. And it's like, and maybe they fall short. And that failure can be a little bit difficult to deal with. Yeah. But I, I encourage people to be uh, more comfortable with it because you learn mm-hmm. and it's an opportunity to learn and it's okay. Not the same ramifications all the time as what was in the military, but you can invest. Your purpose can be your kids and your family. And, you know, I have the ability to have uh, influence certain spheres and that, you know, pick what those are. And it could be two or three people because it could be your kids or your family. And that's where you start. And if you just start investing in that, that, that sphere can grow and, you know, those conversations with other people aren't in the military that weren't in the military, don't have a military connection yeah. are very, very important. Um, not only does it help with us and develop learning how to um, develop strong relationships with other people, um, it also helps with that military, non-military divide. Um, instead of making up stories about what the military experience is, that person is actually hearing words and stories and real things. And now the truth comes. And the same thing, instead of us making up stories about our our quote-unquote civilian counterparts i say quote-unquote because i'm a proud civilian now that's one of the identities <laughs> that i hold that's why i say military non-military not military civilian because yeah. i own my civilian identity proudly <laughs> proudly now um but it's important because um yeah we we make up stories and i see it all the time especially in the higher ed space like oh these young kids is usually what you hear don't understand me or and but the truth is, is we don't know a damn thing about any of their experiences sure. either mm-hmm. and so we're yeah. making up our own stories about who they are mm-hmm. and and what's important to them and what they may, may or may not have had to deal with throughout their life and so yeah thank you yeah, yeah. you know Derek it, one of the many reasons we're we're talking with you today is you know you check a lot of boxes right you served for 23 years combat deployments uh you have multiple degrees and in in that process all of those right you have you have looked inward and allowed those that process to play out like in internally as well and and understanding what you're thinking and feeling in those moments and why and that's the biggest thing right i I think one is introspection two is understanding what you're thinking and feeling and researching that which you have done and so you know, you've talked about stressors in the transition process, and I, I think, and you've identified some, and, I, and I'd love for you to share a little bit what your research has shown and, and what your personal experience has also shown, 
how those stressors may be different or how they may also be the same when it comes to the career pivot, but also the, the pivot for a veteran and their family as well or, and or caregiver. Yes. So, um, and I'm glad you mentioned the family piece because all those things that I already mentioned um, have an impact on, on the family because mm-hmm. spouses and children are within that compressed system that the military creates and yeah. are influenced differently than, than other um, systems out there. There are similar ones like elite athletes and stuff like that and right. yeah, negative ones in the, in the penal system and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, but so, uh, so, you know, the common ones are, are what I mentioned. I think everybody has to really examine um, identity, intimacy, and purpose while, while, they're, while they're in that transition, and, and, or at least be conscious of it. Because people ask me, well, what steps do I take? And I said, usually my answer is, you know, awareness is the, is the biggest thing. Um, or if, if you're a practitioner or somebody that works with the military, also awareness is so you can kind of put that in front of folks and just sit and spend some time analyzing it or discussing it. So having a conversation about that or journaling about that as an individual that might be transitioning is incredibly helpful. And then realizing that you do have this, you control your destiny now. You know, we all have different contexts and stuff, but um, you can you can sit down and establish your path and, and set some goals and, and drive towards those and make adjustments and, and stuff as as needed. Uh, but I, but I think those are those are common. Um, some when you, when we get outside the military system and kind of create them to create them with other systems, they're actually those elements are also present, but not the same way because the system doesn't provide those things so fully. But, um, you know, the capital that you have within that, within that system, um, doesn't matter if it's the military or not, when you're, when you're leaving one and going to another, um, you typically lose that capital in the sense that how do I navigate this, this new organization or culture or things like that? Um, so you have to spend some time learning that. And, um, when you kind of frame that over the, over the military, um, that that's pretty intimidating too, because, you know, you get promoted, you get units, you still have the military culture and, and that's also part of the military culture. So you, Hey, I'm in, I'm in a new unit. I'm going to, um, move forward and, and learn what I'm doing. But at the same time, the structure and stratification that the military provides allows you to be successful in that, in that mm-hmm. space. Um, there's an order for everything, you know, you're not making up your route as you, as you do it for the most part, but I mean, use higher education as an example, um, whether you're a student or you're an employee, um, you got to kind of check your ego and you have to figure it out. And sometimes it's unique. And that's what I, I would see a lot of people stress with when they, when they get in higher ed, it's like, well, I, I can pick my classes and, you know, I can build this whole plan myself and, there's not always a path. Sometimes it's kind of a choose your own adventure type of uh, direction. Mm-hmm. And then when I when I started working in the military, or excuse me, in higher ed, I was working at San Diego State, and I was I was the assistant liaison officer, and I just kind of came in and said, I'm I'm here to learn, and um, I'm going to figure this out. And I did it pretty quickly, and I think that's one thing that the military provides. Um, but at the same time. The people that I was working with also had to figure that out. Mm. 
Mm. You know, they had to figure out yeah. what my value was while I was figuring out what my value was. And, you know, kind of on the employment side, we, we see all these folks that are like, oh, they need to hire more veterans or, or we, we complain when organizations are giving lip service to, to hiring veterans and things like that. The truth is, is they're running an organization and they, they care about the military, but it's still this unknown. So if you have 26 year old Marine college graduate uh, in front of you or 22 year old graduate, um, you know, bachelors, the, the difference between them two might be between those two might be four years of the military. Typically the hiring person or the organizations and those within them know exactly what 22 year old fresh graduate is. They right. don't quite know what 26 year old Marine fresh graduate is. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to go with what I know. That's just mm. natural human tendencies. I know what this is. This is kind of an unknown. I'm not sure. And you know, the media told me that that person might be crazy or something like that or whatever mm -hmm. stories they're buying mm -hmm. into because that's all they know. Yeah. Going back to why I think it's really important that we have conversations. So people, Oh, not every person is suffering from post-traumatic stress or, is some sort of hero or whatever stories that everybody tells himself. But um, so that's why it's, uh, you know, you have to figure out your value and, and the organization that you're going into has to figure out your value. And when people talk about, you know, oh, most veterans leave their first job within a year, to me, that's not always a bad thing because that's really that opportunity when they're, they're starting to figure out, oh, I can do this job or this organization is it for me. Uh, for me, I, I think I had six jobs in my first five years, mm -hmm. but each one was a promotion or a hiring away as I figured out my value within these different systems. Other people also understood that and I could right. also communicate that. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, Oh, okay. He's not the crazy Marine, he actually can do this job, um, you know, in the higher education space too. They're like, I don't know what to do with this guy, but um, it worked out and it, it happened very, very quickly when, when you reflect on it and it wasn't negative at all. It was just a big, it was a, a consistent learning experience. Well, and I think too, you know, from hearing your story, part of the, part of your story is that um, you talk about the crazy Marine and, you know, your, your experience, your life experience is very different than your civilian counterpart. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why you were able to positively engage in these organizations, I assume, is because you processed internally some of the things that you had to, that you were dealing with and that could have been a stumbling block and a roadblock to your success in an organization outside the military. Yeah, absolutely. And that yeah. was a vital component to you being successful post-military career, I imagine. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to have at least two practice sessions, if you will, mm -hmm. um, where I did feel those stressors uh, both times when I was in the university. and But I had that safety net, so I was getting paid. Um, all I had to really focus on was was passing my classes and things like that. I didn't have to worry about working and, and other things. So it allowed me to kind of almost practice transition, if you will. Um, and not everybody, I mean, very, very, very few people get to do that. And then, you know, I was also lucky that I, I kind of had this bottoming out while I was still in and I got to kind of recognize that, do the things that I needed to do to deal with it. And so by the time I actually walked out the door and took off the uniform, I had, 
I had gone through a lot of the, the transition processes that um, most people do when they're outside and all mm-hmm. those safety nets are, are gone. Um, and so, yeah, it, those experiences were, were incredibly um, helpful. And, you know, I, I also, I, maybe, maybe it was just me, but I, I, I just kind of was able to take a step back and kind of analyze my situation um, and what I was dealing with and, and explore ways of kind of dealing with it in a more healthy way. I, I distinctly remember doing that when I was um, in my undergrad, and I had those, I had those conversations um, myself when I, as far as what I was talking about with civilian counterparts and stuff like that. You know, I thought I was so old and so experienced, and as a 22-year-old sergeant in the Marine Corps with, during peacetime, and I would kind of poo-poo on uh, some of my colleagues in class. And after about a year, I was like you know, why am I doing this? One, I'm feeling negative myself mm-hmm. and thinking that way. And I'm not making any friends or allies mm-hmm. and doing that. And I was also doing it because I was attached to an ROTC. So it was also doing it uh, to midshipmen. And ultimately the point that made me think about it was um, I realized like, oh, this this midshipman that I'm, I'm kind of not being the most friendly to is going to get commissioned the same day. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be, we're both going to be knucklehead lieutenants that nobody cares about <laughs> and I might have you know a couple of extra years experience but if I if I kind of use my knowledge and expertise that I had gathered up to that point and share it with that um, soon-to-be other marine uh, or midshipman you know now I'm gonna have a colleague and an ally uh, moving forward and I just completely shifted that mindset and process that and that I mean, that's part of the transition process right there. I just had the luxury of being in and realizing it while I was in the military. And it, and then also the other um, pieces. I remember when I, when I came back from Afghanistan and was at USD, um, during that portion, I was kind of like hiding a little bit and like, oh, I don't want people to know I'm in the military. And, you know, I, I felt like higher ed was a little bit hostile Right, uh, towards right. toward the military and so I was kind of hiding and then after a while I just realized oh, that's just a portion of who I am um, if you know if this person doesn't appreciate that uh, that's fine and then that kind of got into well that's only a portion of who I am mm-hmm. I'm also all these other things mm-hmm. and so then that allowed that kind of identity piece to uh, to explore so I definitely spent the time um, on the identity and the intimacy pieces while I was in higher ed and then I had this added luxury of while I while I when I took my leave I was doing MIA work in in my downtime and so I had this other area in my life where I was having an impact that was kind of connected to the military but not necessarily connected to the military system so yeah I just had this incredible I mean it, it, it circumstances allowed me to um, process those opportunities and and like I said I feel like I owe my life to the Marine Corps and I had the luxury of kind of moving through a lot of these issues while I was still in and so then I kind of feel responsible or at least I want to have an internal locus of control as far as having an impact on others um, and assisting them with the, with the knowledge that I've garnered through the process. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these programs are veteran centric um, in assisting the veteran in transitioning and, and pivoting um, 
how what is your research shown uh, that the stressors are for the families in transition very similar um okay. it's a family unit they're, they're part of the system they're they're uh they're experiencing a lot of the it's a unique experience right being being a military spouse and, and being a child hmm. um uh, uh, with a parent or parents in the military comes with its own challenges and um also you you kind of see your value connected to that as a family unit. So those, the, many of those stressors are paralleled with, uh, with the family members as, as they move out. There's definitely a big um, change in the dynamic of the family unit once you step out, step out of that system because right. how much, just think how much that military system controls not only the individual but the entire family unit. And so they're also trying to figure out like, well, what's our new system? And maybe the hierarchy of roles change mm -hmm. um especially on the spouse level you know i mean just think about deployments too you know uh, one one family member deploys for six months 12 months and then come all, everything changes and then comes back that's i mean it, it's almost like going through another deployment like all these role changes and stuff like that so sure. the, the the family members face an incredible amount of stress and it's 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 worth being being conscious of it and sitting down as a unit and, and discussing it. Um, you know, it's interesting. I have a personal mission statement that I think that uh, drives me in a direction through my life. And I developed that before I got out of the military and it's not connected to the military, but I, I recently had, I guess it's been a few years ago now, um, had a chance to hear former, former VA secretary, uh, Bob McDonald talk. And during this session, he talked about, have not only having a personal mission statement, but having a family mission statement. Mm. And that completely Love blew it. me away. Yeah, isn't it? I thought, oh mm. man, that is so sure. cool. Um, and, you know, who, whatever it is, if, but if you sit down and you, you it, even if it's just a spouse, two spouses, then, but it, you, if you have children, you add the children to it and it's like, mm. okay, this is what we are as individuals, but what are we as a collective? Mm. And what are we driving towards as a collective? If you're having those kind of conversations within your family, I think you're going to make it through that process a lot, a lot yeah. better. I mean, yeah. and that's the type of conversation that I think that's really important. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah, mom or dad has uh, left the military. And so let's sit down and talk about what this means to us as a family because yeah. things are going to change quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. Now you have Keith Galloway or Derek around all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no more deployments. I remember, you know, I was used to deploying and not even just six month deployments, but you know, a few weeks here and there detachments. And mm -hmm. now I'm at home all the time. And, and that took a transition for my kids to get used to dad. Like they even still, man, my kids are almost 22 and 19 and they go to oh. Laura first for, you know, like, <laughs> Hey mom, I need this. And Laura has been the anchor. Right. And yeah. I, I have been the one that comes and goes. And, um, and so that just like, I think when the, when the service member actually returns, it, there's a shift in dynamics and you are absolutely right. Unless you talk, sit down and talk through that with people, your kids, a spouse, et cetera, and, and learn how to work through that time together, yeah. it's going to be turbulent. Oh, and you know, you might have a 12 or a 13 year old that's going to roll their eyes and be like, Oh my goodness. Sure. But yeah. the truth is, is that's going to happen anyways. Yeah. Yeah. That's going to happen. No matter <laughs> what. But if you put it out front of them, they're thinking about it. 
they're gonna be thinking about it when you know they're in their room or whatever they're doing working yeah. on their homework um but it, it to me it's just a it's it's an important conversation to have and uh or at minimum to be conscious of it and i think i think awareness is power in all these ways or in all these situations because you know if you if, if you're thinking like okay why am i getting so aggravated or why is this so uncomfortable or what am i missing or things like that then you can kind of that that gives you something to kind of hang uh meat on it's like mm-hmm. oh well you know i don't really have the camaraderie that that i used to have and how do i replace that and or, or man i feel like i'm just not having an impact on the world so right, what do i right. what do i got to do to address that um you know, I'm, I'm at home all day and the kids are sick of me. It's like, well, why is that an issue? Yeah. Well, I haven't been home a lot in the last however long it's been or, or whatever it happens to be. And so, I, yeah, I think uh, being aware of it as an individual is important, but also as a collective is very, very important. What I want to do before we wrap up is I definitely want to talk about Project Recover because this is also a transition-centric work that you're doing. It's a different yeah. transition uh, but you are helping families, in a sense, transition uh, in the MIA work that you're doing. I'd love to hear more about Project Recover and how that has been an element of helping you find purpose and meaning post-military service. Yeah, it's been huge in uh, in filling my purpose bucket. And so what Project Recover is, it's an organization that's been around now close to three decades. I've been associated with it now for 17 years. Um, I started when I was an active duty Marine, but what we do is we, um, search for Americans missing in action from our previous wars. And the intention is to repatriate those that are still missing to their loved ones to provide closure healing, um, to, to gold star MIA families and to have a positive impact on, on the community. We truly believe that when you swear an oath to the constitution and you don our nation's cloth, that. Our nation makes a promise to our service members and their families that if you fall in service, we'll do everything that we can to return you to your loved ones. And close to 82,000 people are still missing in action from our previous wars. Wow. And so that's 82,000 promises yet to be kept. And so we truly believe that we're doing our part to keep America's promise. And, and we do... It started off as just very, very grassroots organization uh, started by my colleague, Dr. Pat Scannon. Um, he was actually in Palau in the South Pacific um, doing some work with a history group searching for um, a Japanese trawler that at the time Ensign George Herbert Walker Bush had sunk uh, during World War II. Wow. And um, they actually found it relatively quickly. And so Pat found himself with some extra time on his hands. Him and his wife, Susan, hired a guide. and. He's a World War II enthusiast, so he just asked the guy to take him to some interesting stuff related to World War II. And one of the first places that the guy brought them to was to this B-24 wing that was sitting in shallow water. And Pat asked the guy, you know, what happened to the plane? What happened to the crew? And the guy had no clue. And so Pat started investigating on his own, learned about all the losses that happened in and around Palau, and started going back on his own to do missions to, to find answers to these losses. And then realized, you know, I probably should have some assistance with this. It's, it's not the safest to be combing the jungles of Palau or diving in the lagoons <laughs> on my own. And so he brought together a group of folks that was originally called the Bent Prop Project and started doing one year, one mission per year, 
uh, to Palau in the South Pacific searching for these sites and um, typically looking for um, aviation sites because it's easier to find a plane uh, and the people associated with it than it is just to find a person. Although we do look for POWs that were also executed um, and their internment sites. And so if you fast forward, um, had, the team had some success. People were repatriated, but in 2012, we um, serendipitously uh, ran into some other people doing work in Palau. And it was some scientists from the University of San Diego, or excuse me, the University of Delaware and Scripps Institution of Oceanography. And they were doing oceanography work and kind of conversed back and forth. What are you guys doing? We're doing this. What are you guys doing? Realized that there was mutual benefit in working together. So now we work with them and others using like automated underwater vehicles to search the ocean floor. Yeah. Um, it's a lot safer. We can cover a lot more ground. And now instead of doing one mission per year, we do multiple missions per year all over the world. We've been to 20 different countries located uh, more than 170 uh, missing Americans and 15 of which have been repatriated. Wow. Um, 70 have been designated uh, buried at sea by the U.S. Navy as part of Navy tradition, assuming that the sites aren't going to be disturbed. And then we have more than 85 cases that are still open while we continue to do um, this work. So we're supposed to be doing uh, back in the field in August. But I became involved in, in 2003, actually 2004. Um, 2003, I went to a World War II uh, reunion for my squadron, 121. And they were like, you need to meet this guy, Pat Scannon. He's doing this incredible work in, in Palau. And I helped them organize their 2004 um, reunion in San Diego. So old squadron meets new squadron and Pat would come and do updates to the reunions and also interview veterans and things like that. And him and I met, became friends. He invited me to be in the group. I was deploying kind of nonstop at that time. So it took a little while before I was able to go on my first mission, but my first mission, I was in Iraq. I flew back from that deployment, unpacked my bags, packed them again, flew to Palau, participated in a mission there. Mm. And, uh, that was my first mission, and I was part of uh, an MIA discovery on my first mission, and it was a member of my squadron, 121. Oh, wow. And that still gives me chills when I think about it. But at that yeah. point, you know, I was I was hooked, and that was what I would do during my um, leave. I would take leave, and I would do my a mission to Palau. Um, I would continue to do research and things like that for the organization year-round. As it scaled, I was invited to be... Uh, on the board as a as a nonprofit kind of built out and then um, when I finished my doctorate they asked me to come over and take over as president and CEO and so that's this mm -hmm. is what I do uh, full-time uh, as far as my job and then I, I still do research and advising and consulting and everything related to all sorts of different military things so can you describe to our listeners what it's like to be able to return somebody's loved one who's been missing in action for an extended period of time. Yeah. And that actually kind of explains the process of being a member as well. So I tell people when they, when they join our group that typically they're going to go through three stages. Uh, and the initial stage is like, this is something I'm really interested in. It seems like the right thing to do. I have the capacity to support and things like that. And then they, they come and participate in, in the way that they can participate in, and then the second phase is when they participate in um, locating an MIA. And that, that just raises the level of commitment and the reality of the work that we do. And then the third phase is the last phase. And that is when you, you have the opportunity to witness 
um, somebody repatriated to their family and the impact that that has um, on individuals, families, communities, and the nation as a whole. And I, you can't accurately put it into words. And we have been very fortunate to be invited to uh, the vast majority of the memorials uh, for these MIAs that we have located and really brought into the fold with the families. And we are very you know, happy and grateful for, for that opportunity. Um, I mean, really, we just we do the work because it's our way of saying thank you. But when you witness that, um, it, it's unreal. You know, people ask, these people have been missing for seven, eight decades. Is, is it really important? And um, the answer is yes. Yeah. And these families, um, their grieving process was interrupted and that grief has transitioned from, to generation down the generations. And there's always a, some sort of memorial to their loved one. There's stories made up about that loved one. Um, and so now you get to provide truth and, and hopefully some sort of closure to the family. I mean, the loss is still there, even all these years later. But um, the memorials also turn into this celebration. And, you know, one of the examples we, we, I like to use, and they're all unique, but they're all special, um, was a memorial that we went to in Portage, Pennsylvania. And Sailor was returned and flew, flew into Pittsburgh, and they drove the two, three hours to Portage. And, you know, it was raining, but the, all the the motorcycle groups and everybody else came out to to lead this entourage all the way back to Portage. Wow. Portage, and when you got into town, all the children had been let out of school oh. or from every grade, and were lining the streets and and the police and everybody else was out there, um, wave flags and hand hands over their heart to welcome this person home, wow. and then uh, you know the ceremonies and everything around that. And what we see is, you know, as I mentioned, we make this promise. But we, we hold our service members accountable to maintain that promise, right? So, mm. so you have service members that are, that are impacted like this that felt like maybe they didn't hold up their part when this person was left behind or went missing. And so now they get to heal. Um, the families have some sort of closure and, and they get to heal further. They have answers. Um, they know what happened. There's a second wave of impact from this MIA loss. They had an impact when they sacrificed for our nation. And now seven, eight, however many years, seven, eight decades, however many years later, um, they're having a second wave of impact. So that family is also healed. But then the community comes together. It's obviously not partisan or anything like that. So people yeah. come across uh, from all sorts of places to, to recognize, um, you know, distance relatives come from all over the country, sometimes all over the world to yeah. acknowledge this family members that haven't met, that haven't met before uh, yeah. come and there's, there's all this connection, community, and healing that occurs all the way to the national level because, as I mentioned, we make this promise as a collective, and now the nation is holding up their end of the bargain. And so, you know, there's a more trust is built in, in our greater community, our nation, and things like that, and additional yeah. healing from the wounds of war occur. And believe it or not, that process is also paralleled in the host nation. So mm -hmm. I use Palau because that's where we've worked so much, yeah. those, those witnesses, those that were there during the war get to participate in the return of somebody that they feel gave them their freedom. Um, and, and it happens all the way up to the office of the president, their government is interested in supporting this work. And so yeah. all those healing factors are paralleled in the host nation and in our nation. 
And, you know, it's becoming more and more important. I didn't think it would become more important, but it seems like as we become kind of more divisive in our nation, this type of work that we can all come together and unite over um, is just, is just vital. And yeah. And so for me as an individual with a military background, but even if you don't have a military background, like my, my, my purpose bucket is filled. Like I can see the impact that, that some of my work is having on, on these families and these communities and things like that. And we have more than half of our members are either active duty veterans or first responders. And so they are fully committed to that. And when I see that they might be going through the transition process, again, that purpose piece isn't, doesn't fall off because they, they're having an impact and yeah. um, it's good for their own personal mental health. Um, they're, ha- they're having an impact on the community that they care about, the military community. So you have military family members that are receiving the benefit on one side that you get to contribute to. We have military and veterans and first responders within our organization that are, that are feeling value, that have strong relationships with those that they work with. They're, mm-hmm. they're committed, they're, they're working, they're getting dirty, um, they're having an impact. Um, so that, that all those things that, that you, with, you experience in transition, um, the work of Project Recover um, is able to you know, help them through that process if, the, if they're going through it, um, even if it's yeah. been a while since they got out. Yeah, your your guys' slogan or or motto, if you will, is is every American's mission, um, or every American's promise. Is that it? Mission. Keeping America's promise, every American's mission. Yes. Yeah, yeah, every yeah, American's yeah. missions, and you know it it is like it's something that I've been more aware of lately. Is you know there is and we've talked about it earlier of you know the the initiative to hire veterans, and that's that's all wonderful. Um, and helping veterans transition and helping veterans with PTSD and, and that kind of thing. And, um, and then it goes to a broader thing that I think we need to, as Americans, continue to consider um, is how we deploy those who serve, right? And, and your, what you're doing is, is really, I think, highlighting that, the, the gravity of how we deploy our men and women of uniform, they may never come home. And, uh, and if they do, it may not be in the state that we want them to come home either physically, mentally, emotionally, all of the above. And, um, and I think that is also every American's mission. It's, it's not just like, Hey, let's support the troops and give you a slap on the back. Thanks for your service. It's how, how are we engaging the men and women of our, our armed forces? And, um, Gosh, we do that through voting. We do that through a lot of different things, but then we also do that through missions like yours and, and to help bring closure to families, uh, to, for uh, families of service members who have paid the ultimate price. And, um, and that is so valuable. I, I yeah. applaud. Ameri- every Amer- Thank you. Thank you. The, the every American's mission piece is, is exactly that. And, and we use that intentionally. And, and the reason is, is for the point that you make is we, we participate in, war as a collective mm-hmm. and um we we participate as a nation and we have the luxury of only needing a small number of people much smaller than what we've used in the past as far as our military goes mm-hmm. um and and we send them off to these conflicts and the other luxury is, is yeah they're deploying away from us and we're not impacted and we've been barely impacted by the um the ravages of war since since world war ii 
um, you know, they were sacrificing and stuff uh, during that in multiple ways on the home front. Yeah. Of course, we had 9-11, but for the most part, average American isn't impacted by the two decades of war that we've had going on. And so, you know, their biggest concern is, you know, now we have COVID and, and things like that. But outside of that is minuscule stuff. You know, is my my cable turned on? Am I caught up on Game of Thrones and, and yeah. things like that? And that is an absolute luxury. And that's what I want for, for my loved ones. But I also want them to be aware that there are people over there being deployed and sent to, to fight and do other things on behalf of our nation by our leaders. And when you have such a small portion of our population that participates in that and you're not aware of it, that's a little bit dangerous mm-hmm. at the same time. Absolutely. And so it's good to be aware of it. Um, on the other side of that, you know, we participate in war as a collective and we should heal from war as a collective. But a, a large portion of our community just says, you know, that's what the military does. And I don't, I don't agree. And you might not agree with it. And I, I, I'm happy that people don't agree with certain things. We should have a diversity of thought and things like that. Um, but we should acknowledge, okay, we, we are participating in, the, in this as a collective and what are going to be the, uh, the repercussions of that. And let's, let's heal as a collective to ensure that we can move on as a healthier nation and things like that. And so that's one of the things that we're very, very conscious of. And we want people uh, to believe in that, you know, we, we have the benefits of this incredible nation that we live in because of people that, that have sacrificed before us. Um, And so, you know, how can, how can we ensure that that continues on into the future? And and we, we truly believe that we we're having an impact on that and bringing awareness to that. And, um, and people can help help our mission in any any small way. We're always looking for force enhancers, and we w- we want people to to help with that. And so that was going to be my final question. If somebody wants to get involved yeah. with Project Recovery, how can they do that? What are the ways that they can participate? Yep. So um, the easiest way to participate, whatever way that is, is to go to the website projectrecover.org. Um, or if somebody wants to contact me, probably the easiest way is to look me up on on LinkedIn. But um, we, we like when people reach out to us in multiple ways. One, uh, we are a volunteer-based organization, so we're always looking for people that have capability to enhance our mission. And um, that could be all sorts of different ways um, and all sorts of experiences. So there's, there's a process on our website, and it starts through the website, um, and we'll work with people that might have interest in that. The other side of it is, is maybe you have a loved one um, in, your, hmm. in your family or somebody that you know that's missing. Um, and we want to hear from those people too, because sometimes those trunks in the attic from your uncle um, carry journals and things like that, or information that we are not aware of. And if if you have information, we're going to take any and every little tidbit and add it to our database, and that could result in somebody being returned uh, to their loved one. So we want to hear from MIA families, and then if just people want to support, um, they can reach out to us through our website and and be supportive. We're looking for partners and and others that that want to contribute to this mission because we think it's really important. Yeah, excellent. I would love to go with you on a mission. I don't know how yeah. that how well, that like So the process we we have a whole um interview process if you will or application process. Okay. Um and it starts on the website and okay. um it, it, basically you you submit your interests and we ask everybody to submit a video which is not graded on videography direction or anything like that okay. it's uh um, it's actually a self-select mechanism believe it or not 
um, because we get so many people that are kind of flipping about it and they don't yeah. realize the work and stuff like that. And so we've, yeah. we've built up some self select mechanisms in the process. And that, that that's one of the biggest ones out there. People just don't want to make a video and it's like, we actually don't care if it's like sideways or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. We can figure that out. We just want to hear the message and show people sure. that people will actually do it. Yeah. And then from there, that's screened and then it goes to interviews. There's four interviews um, that, that, that happen. And then, um, and then they make a decision. And so, yeah, if, if it's an interest of yours, it's, uh, you know, I obviously I'm, I'm a little bit biased, but I think it's an mm -hmm. important, important work or I, yeah. or I wouldn't be doing it. And it is life changing, yeah. honestly. I mean, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, if I thought I'd be doing this and having some of the conversations that I'm, that I'm having, I'd be like, what? But all I did was I showed up and was kind of like, what can I do? You know, can I, you want me to carry buckets, what, yeah. paint walls? I'll do that, whatever you want. And then yeah. here I am now, and um, I would have never, ever thought that it would be possible. But my, my whole philosophy is, is like, in my, my mission statement, personal mission statement, have a positive impact on as many people as you can throughout my life. And that could be in all sorts of different ways. And so I really spend time analyzing like where does my voice carry weight and if i see that it's it works in a certain space then i just invest more and invest mm -hmm. more and invest more and that's been higher ed that's been transition that's been the mia community and i just it brings me joy um, yeah. that that i can have a positive impact on people and, yeah. and here we are <laughs> thank you for listening to season four episode 18 with homebound veteran we appreciate your support of this podcast primarily because you're supporting veterans and their families in their transition stories thank you to derek abbey for giving us his time and sharing his story with us stay tuned for our next episode with the sierra club military outreach program two members who are veterans who are leading these programs that are helping military members transition by getting into the outdoors thank you to parallel stereo for the music you get to listen to during this podcast. And until next time, I'm Keith. I'm Laura. Be well. And own your journey.